0: There has to be a line
1: between what is acceptable behavior that is commendable and what is just behavior that gets attention for attention's sake. And I think it's feeding into this attention deficit that our society is facing right now.
2: From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and today on our show, we're going to talk about concerts getting wild, ChatGPT goes to school, and how old is too old. Joining me for this conversation are Russell Moore and Nicole Martin. Russell and Nicole, welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Hey. All right. So it's been a big summer for concerts. Beyonce and Taylor Swift are breaking records all over the world with their ticket sales. My daughter actually told me this morning that Taylor Swift concerts are apparently setting a record for engagements. I didn't know this was a thing that was tracked, but apparently it is. But there's also been this streak of like truly awful behavior from fans. Mm -hmm. A singer, Bibi Rexa, was hit in the face with a cell phone. Another singer named Ava Max was attacked by a fan who rushed the stage, slapped her on the face. In Vegas, a fan threw a drink at Cardi B. Cardi B threw a mic at the fan. They got off easy on that one as far as I'm concerned. Maybe the most bizarre incident so far at Hyde Park, Pink was performing and someone threw a bag of their mother's ashes on the stage to Pink. (laughs) Pink's comment was, this is your mom? I don't know how to feel about this. (laughs) neither do any of the rest of us. So it was interesting. There's there's a lot of columns. People are writing about this in a lot of different places in the LA Times, in Vox, in Rolling Stone. People are blaming the pandemic. And they're talking about how we got out of practice with large social gatherings and that similar bad behaviors on display in places like movie theaters and other public spaces. I guess I'm personally a little less compelled by the blame the pandemic logic here and what I am compelled by is this idea of like first person syndrome, this idea that mm. living online, living on social media, people have just sort of learned to think that what's going on with them, the story of their lives is the only one that matters. So mm. of course they should rush the stage. Of course they should try to get the viral video clip or whatever it might be that's compelling. But I'm curious your thoughts on this. What do you see and why do you think this is happening right now?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, I'm really Kind of caught off guard by just the way that people enjoy sensationalism. I think when you talk about first personism, there's also a sense that people become very popular, very seen, very known, even with extravagant behaviors. So it's not just that someone threw a drink at Cardi B. It's the fact that that person becomes somebody. Mm -hmm. I was the one. She Mm -hmm. threw the mic at me. And then you become a viral sensation. It reminds me of a classroom. You know, I have a third and a fifth grader and we had parent-teacher night last night. My daughter's a talker. When you are talking, excessively in the glass. That is not a good thing because it makes you popular. There has to be a line between what is acceptable behavior that is commendable and what is just behavior that gets attention for attention's sake. And I think it's feeding into this attention deficit that our society is facing right now.
3: I think that is exactly right. But I also think people are crazy, getting (laughs) crazier, and and you add into it this threat of violence. I was in a church this past week where someone clearly mentally disturbed came in screaming theological correction to what the pastor had said and I noticed that my immediate response was to say okay, let me get my kids together and get on top of them if this turns into something really violent. I mean, that's, that really tells us where things have moved in a way that just isn't good for yeah. society. And I just don't know what the tipping point is going to be for us.
2: Yeah. I mean, the thing I immediately thought when I saw the footage of one of these incidents brought me back to something that took place in 2004, a guy, a musician by the name of Dimebag Darrell, he was the guitar player for a band called Pantera they'd broken up. He was in a new band. He was playing a small club and a guy charged the stage at this show and shot him, shot him three times. Mm. Just deranged fan. Killed him and killed three other people before he was stopped by the police. I've been in bands and on stage before when somebody rushes the stage and it is a horrible feeling. Mm. You know, as a musician on the one hand you're sitting there going, I have a job to do, right? And on the other hand, you you don't know if the person's drunk, if they're high, if Tuesday night at the Dame is their chance for their 15 minutes of fame, you know, mm-hmm. in Lexington, mm-hmm. Kentucky. But there's a vulnerability to the performance that, mm-hmm. you know, I just think for a lot of artists, there's going to reach a point where they get sick of it, and you're going to yeah. see things change at concert venues. If there aren't consequences that are significant enough yeah. to act as a deterrent, I don't know how it slows down if people really buy into that being a way to be seen.
3: Don't you think too, Mike, that there's something about music and the sort of personal connection that people have with music that then is individualized. I mean, we all have our music curated in our streaming services and that people can have this sense, especially people who are disturbed. I own this person. And so if they're not doing what pleases me right now, then I have the right just to lash out. I think there's quite a bit of that going on too.
1: Yeah, I was actually gonna add to that because I think when you think about the fact that these are all women, there's a certain familiarity that people have with people that they think they're close to. So Mm -hmm. you add social media, and that increases a perception of proximity. Mm -hmm. So it's not just Beyonce's in my ear the whole time, it's Beyonce is my coach, she's my friend, she's somebody I know. You know, it's not just, I'm gonna throw my mom's ashes on Pink's stage, this is someone who's close to me, this is my mom's dying wish, I want to meet Pink. So Mm -hmm. I think there's a certain certain perception of proximity that makes people feel very familiar, very collegial. This is somebody that I know. It's someone I listen to all the time. Of course I know them. Do
2: you think there's a place for the church to make a difference here, for the church to be a place where we can be a catalyst for the kinds of real in-person brick and mortar relationships that can meet the need that people are rushing the stage trying to meet?
3: Well, I think one thing we have to do is to disincentivize what Nicole was talking about a few minutes ago, that sense of negative attention. And I feel instead what we usually do is to incentivize it and often out of good motivations. So you have somebody who's constantly kicking up quarrels within the church and a lot sometimes they have to do with music because that just hits people at a more intimate sort of location internally, but they try to stir things up, they try to create negative attention toward themselves and we want to bear with them. we want to kind of help them along and that's good. But there does come a point you know where Paul says this divisive, factious person has been warned and warned have nothing more to do with that person. And I think that's something that's really, really hard for us in churches to get.
1: You know, there was a lot of negative talk about Beyonce's concerts, particularly from preachers and from ministers and Christian leaders. They felt like the idea of the beehive meant that Beyonce had a cult. And, and so the the talk was people that have been idolized by culture. Perhaps mm-hmm. our role as, as the church is to show that, you know, pink is not a god. It's so easy for that person to become like your god. Mm-hmm. What would Taylor Swift do? <laughs> (laughs) Maybe the church can help us to remember, here's what it means to be human, and here's what it means to serve God and not to serve other humans.
2: I do think there is something fascinating, and this goes across the board with the whole social media phenomenon, this need for recognition from lonely people who Mm. they're desperate for that five minutes, they're desperate for that viral clip or the Mm -hmm. retweet or whatever, simply because their life is marked by just a longing to be seen that they don't have. And that's where the ordinary life of community and relationships and connection is so critical, but it's such an unglamorous thing to make the bread and butter of ministry. sometimes I think we forget how important it truly is. All right, well, we will be right back.
1: Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. We are excited to welcome a guest on our show to talk about the future of AI in education. Dr. Kevin Brown is the president of Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. His research interests include economics, philosophy, and theology. Dr. Brown, thank you so much for being on today.
0: Oh, this is an honor. Thank you so much.
1: Well, we have lots of questions and prayerfully you have all the answers (laughs) about AI and the way that it's being used in education. So back in the spring. This whole response to ChatGPT was the fear that sometimes parents and educators would see ChatGPT being used in their child's education, either writing essays or doing homework. In fact, there are a lot of schools that realize they try to ban ChatGPT, but are unable to do so. And so they're trying to figure out ways to integrate it. So this brings up All kinds of questions about academic honesty, about plagiarism, about what the boundaries should be and the ethics should be around this technology and its use on our lives. You wrote a little bit about this for CT last year. So tell us what your perspective is. Honestly, is AI good for education or not so much?
0: Well, I think what I was writing about was this could be good for education. If education is simply students passively consuming information and regurgitating that back. And then that regurgitation is assessed in some way. But if education is something more, and if we can think of it more broadly, then this might be an opportunity for institutions to lean into those deeper dimensions of what education is about. We're trying to enlarge a student's intellectual capacities and their skills, but There's really a moral dimension that's very important in the work that we do. And I want to press that point a bit. I've used this expression on our campus from Wendell Berry. He he makes the comment to the effect that a good artist is also a good forger. And the ethicist Mm -hmm. Martha Nussbaum says a good doctor is a good poisoner. And we can think of so many different ways to go on that a thoughtful accountant Could be a good thief and a charismatic leader can coerce harm. I've been fascinated by some of the innovative editing software that has been created that can stand in for an actor or actress in a film, but it can also be used to make a national leader appear to say something they never said. So it can have this effect to save Hollywood time and money, but it can also destroy democracy. So the point is, it's not just the skill. Education is not just simply about the cultivation of certain skills that are fostered in the marketplace at a given time, but it's the moral application of those skills that would separate the artist from the forger and the doctor from the poisoner, the performer from the
3: deceiver. Dr. Brown, how would you suggest for somebody who's a teacher, whether a teacher in a school classroom, a Sunday school teacher, a small group teacher, whoever? I mean, AI, chat, GPT, those things aren't going mm-hmm. away, and they're, become, they're becoming to become increasingly embedded in our lives. How can that person teach how to use those resources without losing that broader sense of education that you just talked about?
0: I think it relates to our approach to it. I joke with students about this recently that I went to a Christian elementary school and middle school, and so it's always, how close can I get to the line on language? So everyone says, you know crap or or something like that. that that's the edgiest word that you're allowed to use as opposed to how close can i get to reflecting Ephesians 4:29 like language that's edifying and building others up so i think if we bring that kind of perspective to the classroom that this is a tool but the goal is not how far down the line can i use this tool and still maintain some kevin brown but how close can i get to kevin brown while still utilizing this tool, because I do think an approach of total technology abstinence is really not helpful because that's not going to be the reality Mm. that we inhabit in the future, and it certainly isn't right now.
1: If you're a parent and you see your child using tools, how do you guide the moral compass so that they at least know where the line is and so that they can be trained enough to not just make it a game of how close they can get to crossing it?
0: Well, I think that will require a lot of discussion and Mm -hmm. a lot of moral evaluation. And that's why you all, I'm sure, are familiar with Tish Harrison Warren has written really well about having these like almost Amish instincts or Anabaptist instincts when we approach technology, the, the instinct to pause and to ask what the adoption of any new technology does to us individually? What does it do to our community? What questions or stories are inherent in its usage? And I love the Wendell Berry phrase when people say, Well what should I do? If you want me to be skeptical of technological adoption, what should I do? And he says, You do it, you can. And so that's an evaluative judgment and that requires conversation, whether that's a family, whether that's a school, and then let that flow into some best practices. Let me say, I've always been a bit skeptical of this idea that AI is going to gain consciousness and then use that for malevolent reasons. You know, this kind of science fiction story, destroy us all. But I did recently hear the expression of agency. In other words, how much am I willing to agentify? (laughs) Never heard that term. Like how much agency do I give AI? And I think that's a really fruitful conversation. Because if we're talking about medicine, for example, I think that's Mm -hmm. great. I think the composition of medicine, I think AI would be a wonderful tool to help me think carefully about that and minimize errors and improve health. What about determining prison sentences? That's Mm. a little strange. Or a recent one I saw was writing wedding vows. So the question is, Mm. where is agency valuable? And where does discernment come in and moral evaluation and that goes back to that idea of how close can I get to a moral expression that's authentically human and not how close can I get to the line.
2: It seems to me like one of the opportunities in talking to people about this as they're considering adopting the tools or if you're talking to students. I think about this all the time with my kids, is everything comes with a trade-off, right? So it's great that this thing accelerated your writing process because you were able to just punch in your bullet points and it turned out your essay. But for me, you know, I mean, part of the reason I came to really love writing is because I discovered that the writing process itself is a way of thinking and is a way of understanding my own ideas, understanding what I think, making judgments and all of that. That happens in the process of writing. And to me, one of the dangers in ai is that it shortcuts a very human process of judgment and discernment that's necessary you know if you're a teacher and you're writing a letter to a parent about what's going on with a kid or if you're doing pastoral work the process of sort of living with the ideas and with the thoughts to get a thousand words on a page or two thousand words on a page is a very different thing than it's, it's not just about getting your bullet points right, you know? And so I wonder if there isn't something to be said as well for, for talking about the virtues of the slow yeah. work that are lost when AI takes over some of those human tasks.
0: I think there's this false idea that I know something and I write it down. Creativity is not a eureka moment. It is nonlinear. It fits and starts. It's really struggling through to get some end product. And so I think there is something to be said for wrestling and part of that struggle to really produce something creative beyond the very blandness that tends to be associated with common writing tasks, which again, I contribute to.
1: I love that what we're talking about isn't just tools and education. This is really reshaping our understanding of success. I mean, if success is turning your paper by the deadline and repeat everything that you've heard, then yes, you're right. These tools are really good because ChatGPT is excellent at giving back what you give it. I did have ChatGPT write a text message. I said, write a text for uh, me missing a friend's dinner and I'm heartily sorry. It was pretty good. It's like, (laughs) it was very like, you know, gracious. Oh, I want to
3: use that one, Nicole, a lot. (laughs) I mean, if you ever have to break
1: a dinner date, it actually works really well. But, you know, it does, it seems like it's going to require a lot more work in the the educational institutions in order for us to get there, in order for us to get to the place where the slow work is honored and your actual heart is honored as opposed to your ability to regurgitate what you've heard.
0: There's this wonderful line by Christopher West that love by its nature seeks to expand its own communion, that this is generative and we bear that thumbprint. And so you're right. It's not about the final product. It's about the process of how that gets created and the community that gets mobilized in that creation. And I think, Nicole, you said something really spot on that what are we honoring as an institution in the educational process? Is it just the end product? Is it just a well-written paper? Or you got the right answer in the calculation? Or are we honoring and assessing some of these processes of creativity, because we know that the learning and the knowledge and the wisdom and the application are gained in the struggle.
1: Well, thank you for your insights, for the work that you're doing at Asbury. It's been great to have you on with us today.
0: Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is a blessing.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
3: And we're back. I would be remiss if I did not mention this week the death of my fellow Gulf Coastian... Pascagoula native Jimmy Buffett, who died this week, whose music people often think of in terms of the fun kind of Margaritaville vibe. But he also wrote a lot about aging and death. And uh, one of those songs is A Pirate Looks at 40, in which Buffett says, Yes, I am a pirate, 200 years too late. The cannons don't thunder. There's nothing to plunder. I'm an over 40 victim of fate. Mm. And as I was thinking about that again, this one, thinking, 40? We've got a president who's almost 82 years old. His most likely opponent is approaching 80. We have a Senate majority leader who's 81 and who has started blanking out at least a couple of times in silence in press conferences to the point that it's become a meme. We have a lot of old leaders. And this week, there was a Wall Street Journal poll in which three-fourths of voters said that President Biden is too old to run for president again. Two-thirds of Democrats said that Biden was too old to run for president, and 47 percent feel that Trump is too old to run for president. And there have been other polls that have shown similar things. It's really interesting in talking to Democratic elected friends. They're very nervous about the president's age, not because they think he's in any kind of mental decline. He's not, but because he, he's obviously slower. His voices really soft. In the same way that a lot of my Republican elected officials, friends, are very nervous about another Trump run for other reasons. So, Nicole and Mike, do you think that this is one of those things kind of like with Ronald Reagan back a generation ago? People think he's old, but they start to get used to it in terms of how long people live. Or are we really in a dicey time when it comes to how old these guys are?
2: Correct me if I'm wrong. How old was Ronald Reagan in 1984 when he was criticized for his age?
3: Uh, Seventy-four. <laughs>
2: right? Wow. So Seventy-four. He was a yeah. spring chicken uh, <laughs> compared to where we are, <laughs> yeah. These days. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is going away because aging doesn't stop, and the signs of aging don't stop. The signs of aging tend to be progressive. So for each of these politicians, you're going to see age take its toll. You're going to see more evidence that they're not at the level that they were in terms of their pace of their thought, their pace of their words, their ability to keep up. I had an interesting experience a few years ago where a friend of mine who, at the time he was in his 80s, he had this incredible collection of essays that he'd been working on for years as a Christian academic. And he'd put them together and he said, hey, do you think anybody would want to publish these? And I was like, I think they're incredible. Absolutely. Let, let me see what I can do. And I was really, really disappointed by just the complete lack of interest from a number of publishers who saw these things, all of whom said the same thing, which was basically, this is great work, but we don't know how we would market something mm-hmm. from someone old, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, they didn't say it in exactly those terms, but that's, exa- that's exactly what they meant. I was disgusted by that because mm-hmm. I'm like, you want wisdom from people who are in their 80s, reflecting on a life's work. But it's a very different thing to offer wisdom (laughs) at that age and carry a load of responsibilities like the President of the United States or the Senate Majority Leader, and so on and so forth. High demand, high pressure, high work Mm -hmm. jobs that require a, a kind of energy that literally, when you look at the science of aging, tends to taper off. A a certain kind of energy tends to taper off after 60.
3: And this isn't just a societal thing. You look at the church, you think about how many of our elder statesmen, we've got the problem of sometimes people, oh, well, they're too old, we write them off, which is direct contradiction of biblical teaching. But sometimes we continue to put people out. I Mm -hmm. I think of some of those later interviews of Billy Graham where I was thinking, who's letting this happen? I mean, this mm-hmm. is a brilliant, awesome, amazing Christian man, and he's continuing to be put out there being asked questions that really aren't reflective of the way that he had been teaching and carrying his life. It's a hard thing to decide about wh- what's that line. Yep.
1: Yeah. And I think it's especially hard now because there is also a mental perception that I don't have to age now as my grandparents did. And I do think that's true. I think that, you know, the access to medicines and access to all kinds of things means that we don't age the same way. We can live very full lives in our 70s and 80s. But again, we're facing this huge generation of the boomer generation, and they're living longer than their parents and grandparents. And maybe they do need some coaching to say, here's what an off-ramp looks like. Here's what it looks like to raise up, you know, the next generation. I mean, my mom says it all the time, 70 is a new 40. And she lives like <laughs> <Yeah>. it, too. <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: Russell, you you were the first person who I ever read use the word gerontocracy. Mm. Um, you know, it is fascinating to see how many different cultural institutions right now are led by boomers, people in their 70s, people who aren't retiring, there does seem to be interesting and sort of intense generational conflict going on that that is leaving boomers to say, well, we can't let it go. What do you think is behind that? If you look at local
3: church life, it is true. We have had one train wreck after another when it comes to transitions, both because of people who... I think part of it is we don't have a category, for people to be able to come in and actually cultivate and use wisdom. So you end up with situations where when people retire, they don't know what to do with their lives and they start to really break down in many cases unless they've really been working at it for a long time and you don't have the cultivation of a next generation. You have a lot of, especially men, who don't feel like they're cultivated for the next thing. They start to lose meaning and some dangerous things can happen. They're lost. And that's what I see happening a lot in churches, unless they're intentionally saying, we're not going to do that.
2: I think part of what's discouraging about what you see, particularly in, with the presidential race right now, there are so many people around the situation who benefit from proximity to power, mm-hmm. that it's in their interest to continue to prop up leaders who long ago should have retired, whose health conditions, you know, should have inclined them to retiring. And I think there's an aspect of that in particular, and I think this is probably similarly true with like when people were bringing Billy Graham out when he was at at such a late stage. It's in their self-interest to keep these people in the limelight because they benefit from proximity. You know, whether it's mm-hmm. financial, whether it's power, whether it's influence in the party, whatever it might be, and that is just a deeply inhumane mm-hmm. thing to do to folks.
1: It puts a lot of pressure on that next in line. There is a very strong reality that one generation is not passing the mantle. A, because they don't have enough people that they would consider passing it to. Yeah. But B, because they don't have graceful off ramps. They don't want to go fishing. They They don't want to go, you know, sit someplace in a corner and watch a fireplace. They want to stay engaged. So I feel like this could be a space for the church to start developing meaningful, purposeful roles for people of age. And if we can do that, maybe they'll be more likely to say, I see a successful off ramp and not, you know, freak out because there's nothing left.
3: Well, we have in front of us a year in which two really old guys are going to be doing battle with each other and all the rest of us are going to be biting our fingernails and wondering what happens. So we will see. Thanks for tuning in to The Bulletin. We'll see
2: you next week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Our executive producer is Eric Petrick. Our producers are Clarissa Mall and Matt Stevens. Our associate producer is Azure a Phelps. Editing and mixing by TJ Hester. Music by Dan Phelps, show design by Brian Todd, graphic design by Amy Jones, social media by Kate Lucky.